good place to start. Um, yeah, I want to talk about Transcendent Includes. So this is part two of a, a pretty short series. Um, yeah, and what are we talking about? Um, are we talking about an idea? Transcendent include? Are we talking about a way of being? Maybe one way of putting it is we're talking about a possibility, a, a possibility, a posture, a posture we can inhabit and might inhabit in the world that is um, really, to use a, a word that we value, uh, inclusive, an inclusive posture, an inclusive way of being. What gets included? And Bob's meditation was a hint of uh, not all things are pretty that are included, even in our own personal stories. So um, it's not just kind of an abstract philosophical concept that we're trying to get across here, but trying to wrestle with something and just suggesting some possibilities. Uh, and maybe I thought of three images. It might be better to work with some images, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into some details after that. So here's an image that comes from Bob's meditation. Like, well, what is the relationship between the moth and the caterpillar? It's an interesting question. What, what, what mode of being does the moth, what's the relationship between the moth and the caterpillar in terms of its mode of being? Let me put it in another way. Can the moth say to the caterpillar, I don't need you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, what is included in its own transcendent form? Because that's what it is. Like if, I don't know if, um, if any of us can really go back to, I don't know, our five-year-old self. I'm, I'm guessing about what age. What, at what age did we, we, did we realize that this little crawly being becomes a butterfly or a moth? You know, I mean, that's, that's a profound, that's the most profound kind of transformation you can even imagine. This thing that crawls on the ground is going to fly? Like, what is that? Um, anyway, that kind of, kind of childlike wonder you could, you could apply even to the kinds of conversations we're having here. What is the nature of growth like? And what part of us, as we continue to grow, still includes our previous forms? Our previous modes of expression its maybe one way of thinking about the image. Here's another image that David came up with in, in our pre-talk, which um, if you don't go to the pre-talk, you should feel guilty and ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> pre-talk, people are better. <laughs> Definitely more spiritual and righteous and religious <laughs> and so forth and, and non-religious, you know, whatever. Um, okay. Anyway, here's an image that, that came came to David as we were speaking, and it's like the rings of a tree. You know, if you really look into the rings of a tree, you might see years of drought or blight somewhere in the ring, you know. But it's included in the, in the whole being of the tree being itself. You don't say, well, year 22 I exclude, you know. I didn't like that particular year. And though it may be a challenge to become aware of this is part of my being. Now, I'm, I'm talking kind of very interpersonally, I suppose, right now. There's a dimension to transcend and include that goes beyond just sort of our, our personal stories. And maybe here's another image. So um, I was talking to my wife about, we were talking about transcend and include, and the first time I heard the phrase, probably from Ken Wilber, and she was saying that it actually probably comes from um, Evelyn Underhill. I don't know if you know who that, who that is. Evelyn Underhill wrote a very famous book called Mysticism. It was published in 1911. 
and uh, she was a pacifist and a scholar, and um, it's a profound book. It's, it's the other side of William James's book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. They're kind of having a conversation about what is the nature of reality and what is the nature of human experience and what is the nature of a, quote, religious experience or a mystical experience and so forth. So anyway, she said, uh, Evelyn Underhill uses the phrase transcend and include, and that's probably where Ken Wilber gets it. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. And, um, and it's interesting in this respect <coughs> that one of the things that Evelyn is laying out is across religious traditions and spiritualities and people groups, there have been people who have had a transcendent kind of experience. And all I mean by that at the present moment is their present worldview kind of imploded and they, well, we'll just use the above metaphor, but it could be below if you want, but they, it expanded. They moved above that the particular confining starting point. And that's essentially what a, well, one version of, of a mystical experience. You're caught up in experience and you often can't create it. Like if I could create it, I'd be, you know, a guru and with billions of followers, you know, and just wave a magic wand and poof. It, it, across religious traditions and spiritualities, the, the possibility of a mystical experience they seem to be saying you can't create it, but it does happen and it changes your world. It changes the way you see things and you no longer see things the same way. And it's obviously not static. You can have more than one. But really, to transcend and include requires that you first have an experience of transcendence. You can't include uh, in that dynamic without having first um, expanded in some way. So an image for that would be like a ladder. Right, let's say consciousness is like a ladder, and each rung on the ladder matters, and you can't skip one, and it's not all that obvious that you can just, uh, by your own willpower, make it to the next rung of the ladder, but if you do, you're a little higher up, and you can see, oh, what just came before. And so it's like a ladder. It's like Jacob's ladder. Right? Here you are, climbing up Jacob's ladder. Right? Now, here's where we get into, in, into the weeds a bit. So Ken Wilber makes a distinction between first-tier consciousness and second-tier consciousness. And I, I've said this two weeks ago. I'm sure you, it's like that. You're like, I remember that exactly, okay? First-tier consciousness and second-tier. And here's what he says. Now, we're going to use the ladder as, a, as, an, as an image for a moment. First-tier consciousness works like this. You, climb the, you start climbing the ladder just by growing up psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. You didn't have an ego at one point, wasn't well-formed. Then you do. You're climbing up. And one of the things that happens is that you reject the previous rung. You're like, can't believe anybody would think like that. And you were just down there like five minutes ago. Okay, that's, that's, that's first tier. And it's very important. And it's very natural. And it's part of what happens. So I'm, I'll give you an example of first tier consciousness expansion. And here are the categories I used two weeks ago. Magic, mythic, rational, and pluralistic. Right? Not everybody goes through all these, but we'll just... Magic, magical thinking, mythic. Well, once you're on the mythic rung, you reject the magical. You say, I can't believe anybody would rub two sticks together. It's the god or the gods that control the weather. All right? And then you move to rational, and you're like, I can't believe anybody would think some god controls the weather. Haven't you, know, you heard of the atmospheric river? I mean, obviously, that's the way it works. El Nino, you know, okay? But you reject the previous one. Do you feel how that that mode works, it's actually important. 
okay? It's part of how, how we grow. And pluralistic, by the way, would reject the rational and say, all right, you might have your, your science and everything, but the observer is involved and the observer is fallible. Okay, that's the pluralistic perspective. The observer is fallible. So all of that requires, at least to a certain extent, rejection. Now, here's what Ken Wilber says. However, mystical experiences, deep, rich mystical experiences that we learn about from various traditions are really second tier. And what second tier does is open up the, the, the person to a much broader view of reality, where they start to see that every rung of the ladder matters and can't be rejected. That it has to be included. It's part of the psyche. It's part of human consciousness. It's part of development. It's not that everything in the, on that rung of the ladder is true. Some things maybe aren't true. But it's an essential component. And to use Jacob's ladder, now that I, I think it's actually a good one, because Jacob in the Bible falls asleep and he says, he sees angels descending and ascending, going up and down. Well, that's what transcendent include is like. You can move up and down the ladder. You become aware that all the rungs matter, and you're no longer so, like, fired up and you're on your rational rung and be like, those idiots who believe in a God, you know, how dumb, you know. You know how any, any one of us can get about anything. You, once you've lived enough life and maybe been lucky enough to have some transcendent experiences, you start to calm down. You start to say, okay, maybe there's something here. There's a truth embedded in this somewhere. There's a value that is still valuable embedded in this previous worldview that I had five minutes ago or that my neighbor has or that the church across the hall has or whatever, okay? Am I making sense? So those are the images. And my point two weeks ago is, is still my first point right now, which is... Um, the path begins, in terms of posture, a possibility of transcendent clue, the path begins by accepting our own contradictions. Okay? That if, if transcendent include has anything to give humanity right now, as an idea, as a possibility, as a way of being, we have to start by accepting our own contradictions. Right? That you're that complicated, you're not that well put together. I hate to tell you, all right? It's like looking at the, the rings of your own inner tree and saying, oh, actually, that, that I, I'm going to include that. It's part of my story, even though I don't, I don't want to. It's there. And I might even revert to it from time to time, okay? And I don't even know why. I can't even control it. I just all of a sudden find myself going back to some previous thinking mode or way of being or something like that because it's, it's in the rungs of my own tree. Have I made sense? So... Just to say, I'm filled with contradictions is actually a great gift. It's like the Whitman quote, I contain multitudes. That makes you pretty amazing and interesting, but not so pure. <laughs> not so like, um, uh, what's the right word? Well, I'll just go with pure. Right? You're, a, you're a mess, is what I'm saying. Right? That's point number one. And it's possible to even extend, if you can extend some empathy to your own inner contradictions, then it, you're much more likely to extend it to someone else. I mean, if you can't accept your own, it's like the preacher 
who goes on and on and on and on and on about some particular sin, you just know it. That's what they're doing, all right? You, it's every time. You're not even surprised. You're just like, oh, well, I see where this is going. Give it five years, you know? But when you're able to accept your own contradictions, then you're much more empathetic. You're like, okay, I get it. You're hitting the sauce on Friday nights, all right? Whatever the case may be. All right. I don't even know if people use hitting the sauce anymore. All right. Yeah, I'm including, including that part of colloquial phrase. Um, okay. Now, I want to give you a kind of a, 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 an example I first heard from Rich Rohr that has to do with transcending and including, in particular, our own kind of religious past. Because this is a big challenge for a lot of people who are um, maybe no longer religious in the same way or spiritual but not religious or they're so-called nuns. And um, Anyway, Rich, I heard Richard Ward tell this story one time. He said, all right, when I was, went to, was a young person, he said, I, I joined the monastery and, and I was on the track to becoming a priest. And one of the things you do when you become a priest is you have to go to seminary. And what they do in seminary is then just flood you with all kinds of um, uh, theological studies, but also biblical studies. And you start to learn historical critical scholarship. All right? This is also what I, I didn't go to seminary, but I did study historical critical scholarship in, uh, in graduate school. Anyway, here's the first thing that happens. You're sitting there, and he said, just imagine. I'm a young priest. I've got my little Franciscan robe on just crushing the religious game. And here I am sitting in class learning, oh, well, maybe Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem and uh, he was probably born in Nazareth. And, uh, you know, this is just a, um, a, con a kind of constructed myth to make um, Jesus fit into a certain image of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And sure enough, like, a, you know, maybe he didn't really walk on water, but this is similar to other kinds of stories that involve other characters in the virgin birth i mean i mean it says in the bible actually in in isaiah it just says a young woman shall conceive and about five chapters later isaiah has a kid that seems to be about isaiah what does that have to do with jesus and you and this is a priest learning all this stuff and he said so one of the things that that you do as a young priest is then you go take a congregation right after that and you start throwing all this stuff out at them and they're like oh here we have an unbelieving priest again you know and he said, and you're, you're sitting there on Christmas, and you're looking at the nativity scene, and you're tearing it apart. You're like, actually, there are two narratives. You know, the, the Magi, according to Matthew, they come when Jesus is two years old, and, and Luke has as shepherds coming, at, uh, and Jesus is an infant, and here we're cramming them all together in the same nativity set. How stupid, you know? <laughs> and you start to reject all that, because that's part of the tear. You know, you've reached the rational phase of religion and you start being critical of it. The question is, is there anything beyond that? And this is what Richard Gore said. He said, one day I was standing there at the Christmas creche, at the crib, you know, at the, the, the nativity set, and I felt like I could include all this. I, it belongs. His famous book is called Everything Belongs. And he doesn't even exactly say how he got there. But that's an example. And it's not that he rejects now the critical stuff. Somehow that gets included. But also, is there any truth in that nativity set? You know, is, there, is it expressing something that is profoundly true? Can I go up and down the ladder? 
Or do I have to just stay on the rung where I just mock everybody that believes something different than I presently believe during this five minutes of my life? Have I made sense? Now, this story bothers me, <laughs> and it always bothered me because for a long time, I couldn't do that. I just couldn't. I could try, like, hey, tomorrow I'm going to just include. But part of me would be like, I'm sorry. You know, I, I don't want to stand there. So it's a challenge. Transcendent include is a challenge. And maybe until you have a series of experiences, you know, transcendent experiences, experiences where you're, where you're open, your heart is opening in some way, it's harder to stand there and include. Have I made sense so far? Okay. That was point one. Um, point two, let's have a conversation about right-left for a moment, everyone's favorite topic. First of all, we know which one's better, all right? Okay, so let's talk about right-left, and I want to use some, some categories here, and I'm not going to go into tremendous detail, but what I'd like to suggest is that the right-left division has two dimensions to it. I'll get to the second in, in, in a moment, but the first dimension has to do with what we would call mythic literal consciousness, right? It's on the tiers, magic, mythic, mythic literal, rational. It's somewhere in the, in the mythic literal right now, the right-left divisions. In other words, it's rooted in tribalism. And here are the signs of tribalism. I made a list. Phrases like, we're in the right group. Um, we have the right items, the right flags, the right slogans, the right language and so forth and so on. It's group tribal identity. Now, first thing I want to say in Transcend and Include is that that is an important part of human experience. How many of you like to be in a group where you feel like you belong? Okay, welcome to being a human being. It's quite natural. What human beings tend to do, though, in mythic literal consciousness is change that feeling of belonging into a kind of rig rigid certainty. Not only does it feel great to be in the right group, we're the only right group. And either you need to join us, and that might be complicated or, or easy, depending on what kind of group you're in. And what do we do with the other groups? We reject them, and that's how we know who we are. We say we definitely are awesome because we're not like them. That's mythic literal consciousness, and that's the root of every major religion at least to a certain extent. It's not the only route because religion is very complicated, you know? It's very complicated. But a dimension of it is we're in the right group, we got the right clothes, we eat the right foods, we celebrate on the right days. After all, why are, we, why are you here on Sunday? If you're like, I'm not very religious, no way am I missing Sunday at 10 o'clock at C3, you know? So it's, it's just, it's, it's part of the human makeup, all right? Okay. And what I think is happening, this is just purely in the opinion of Kent Dobson, so you can throw it out the window if you want, like anything I'm saying, I suppose. Um, it seems to be this kind of tribalism getting a little worse in the last 10 years. There's a little more fundamentalism on either side of whatever aisle, uh, and more certainty and more rigidity and more rejection of the other. It's contagious in that sense. So I think the conversation about transcendent include is very important. 
it might have some important seeds that can help us navigate what is otherwise a pretty um, fraught environment. Okay. Now, now I'm going to make things even more awesome in my view. Now, um, I've been reading a book, which you should all rush out and then treat like the Bible as the, the, the sacred holy book, um, by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary. I mentioned it about a year ago. And it's a, it's a right brain, left brain book. It's a right brain, left brain book. It's describing what's actually going on in the human mind. Right? What's going on in the human brain. Now, the funny thing about just the image is, okay, there's a right and a left. We should get rid of this. You can't. Your own skull has a right side and a left side, and they don't always cooperate. So no wonder there's a right-left division in the world. No wonder there's a difference of opinion. You have it internally. That's the first thing I want to say. Now, here's what, it's kind of reversed. You'll hear what's sort of funny about it. Here's what the right brain is into. Openness, possibility, creativity, imagination, meaning, connections, symbol, art. That's the right brain, all right? And who has that? Which one of you has the right brain? All of you have it, all right? Now, how much access do you have it? And are the two sides, are the synapses working? You know, whatever. Now, what's the left brain about? Rules, certainty, almost above anything else, it's about certainty. Safety, borders, boundaries. You know, I need to create a boundary with so-and-so. Guess what part of the brain is working? That's the left part of the brain, all right? So inside your own skull, you have at least, uh, you have actually um, an analogous representation of what's going on in the country or in the world or among pe people groups or ideas. Do you feel how these two sides aren't always on the same page? One is much more open, one is much more closed. So the re that's why I want to come back to point number one is you have to accept your own contradictions. Your brain is a walking contradiction. Obviously, I've talked to you. So that was a joke. <laughs> now, just to extend that into two other realms, um, and that has to do with uh, the kind of personality or perspective, we could say. Now, now we get to, s to swap the right and the left because they come out um, the opposite when we speak about them culturally. So what is the right concerned about? Um, fences, boundaries, tradition, conserving, preserving, and rules. All right, remember, also your brain likes that. It does. You could say, I, I don't like that stuff, but part of your brain does. <laughs> That's how it operates. Now, the left, what is it into? Openness, innovation, possibility, rule-breaking. I mean, you can't be much of a leftist if there aren't any rules. You know, you got to have some then you can, so you can break them, all right? And, or it's iconoclastic. It wants, to, it wants to take away boundaries. It wants to tear down um, institutional frames to broaden the field. Now, which is better? Now, let me ask it another way. Um, 
could you live in an only one-sided version of this? What would the world like be like if it was only fences, boundaries, tradition, conserving, preserving, and rules? What would the world be like? <laughs> what would the world be like? Or what would the world be like if it was only openness, innovation, possibility, rule-breaking, and iconoclastic moves. Well, they would be both be versions of chaos, really. I mean, just think about if, every, if, you, if we were constantly, let's say we, we started at 10 o'clock, and I was like, you know, I just, I'm open to meeting at a different time, and I just leave, you know? I'm, I'm not sure what time. I'll just see whatever, whatever I feel, just whatever manifests. And I, hopefully it will manifest similarly and we'll meet up. But if not, we have to be open to that possibility too. It's just instant chaos. It's the dynamic between the two that, that seems to make life interesting. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because my personal opinion is that we need a new stance when it comes to right and left. We need a new stance. And I'm telling you, the brain itself, brain science, is calling us toward a new stance to say, both sides need each other, just as both hemispheres of the brain need each other. And culture needs this kind of tension and dynamic. That is not the same thing as saying every perspective is exactly the same. It's not the same thing as saying every law that we're arguing about is, you know, neutral. You know, I, no, you can still have an opinion. You can still have a perspective. But if, it's, if you're only coming from a tribalistic, mythic, literal consciousness that the other side is wrong, then we're just playing the same game over and over and over again. And it's intractable. So um, my point is brain. Oh, I, I could throw in personality, too. I don't want to get too much in the weeds here. But I, I mentioned this, I think, last year. But the Big Five personality test is kind of the new psychological assessment that's taking the place of Myers-Briggs. And I won't go through all five right now, but they're on a spectrum. And so if you take the test, one of the continuum spectrums is the spectrum of conscientiousness, how conscientious you are, all right? Another one is how open you are. Well, guess what? If you score high in openness and low in conscientiousness, you tend to be more liberal, okay? If you sc score very high in conscientiousness and very low in openness, you tend to be more conservative. Now, where did that come from? And what's going to stop that from happening? I'll tell you, nothing will stop that from happening. That's evolution, baby. All right? There's not much you can do about it. It is true that some parts of our personality are affected by culture, but the Big Five personality is not just a cultural assessment. These are deep. You could even say it's in the DNA of how we come into the world. They change a little bit, each of these you know, con you can become a little more conscientious if you're really low like me, like 2%. Um, I could get to three or four, you know. I could set some reminders and email people back and things like that, all right? <laughs> <laughs> and same with openness. You can be very low in openness, but, you know, if you have a friend who's higher in openness, it, it will open you up just a little bit, okay? So anyway, my point is, if we can use both brain science and personality to calm down a little bit. Say, all right, one reason why this person is so convinced that they're right and their world is right and so forth and so on is in part because of the right hemisphere of the brain and also they might be very low in openness. 
So, okay, does that person have the right to exist in the world? That becomes the question. Do they have the right to exist? And where can we begin to have a conversation? Might be part of the plan. Okay. I have four points, and I see I'm not going to get to them all. Oh, actually, I have five. Um, let me just read. I want to just throw in some of our own values. I want you to hear our values and think about the question, how might transcendent include um, the a stance that we could take in here? And I, I also want you to hear how our values are in tension with one another. And that tension is important, just like right and left tension is important. And right and left hemisphere is important. And someone you disagree with is important. Okay, I'll just read them as they are here. Diversity, or no, what, let's start with um, common humanity. We respect the dignity and worth of every individual. Sounds good, right? We respect the dignity and worth of every um, left-leaning individual. Do you see, feel how it's a challenge already? It's just a challenge. Transcend and include. What, what, who do, what, what gets included? And, all right. Now, also, here's something that's in tension with this value of common humanity. Diversity. We affirm and embrace all genders, sexual orientations, and ethnicities. So are we one in terms of do we have something in common? Is that, is it, is it, I value you because you are just a human being and we are fundamentally the same on that level. Or are you wildly unique and diverse in your sexual orientation and your gender? And do you, do you feel how even those two things side by side create a certain amount of, inten in, uh, of tension? Here's another one. Just to make C3 almost impossible to be a part of. Open inquiry. We pursue the free exchange of ideas. Well, only ideas that we like. Yeah. <laughs> only ideas that, that are acceptable to our group. We, we pursue the free exchange of ideas. That means even the other two, common humanity, diversity, questions about gender or sexual orientation or about the dignity of, of each individual, we also uh, create a certain amount of tension if we're going to exchange in free ideas about things. Well, what kind of ideas? Um, we explore the lessons of science, philosophy, creative arts, and undertake independent spiritual journeys. That's a lot. We're going to value independent spiritual journeys. We're going to look at science and philosophy, not to mention spirituality, religion, psychology. That's my, like, you know, I keep beating the drum of, you know, depth psychology, basically. All right, I don't need to go on. I'll give you two more. Environmental sustainability. We care for our earth home with mindfulness and responsibility for ourselves and for future generations. I do that every day. Look how good I am. Which might actually be in tension with the next one. Um, we promote wholeness and well-being of mind, body, and spirit. Recognizing three things that I will never achieve, I'll just tell you, ever. Self-responsibility, interrelatedness, and interdependence. <laughs> Feel how like these are aspirational. 
and they challenge us, and they stir the pot. And, and if you start thinking about transcending and including, it applies to even these values. How are they in tension? How are they in tension with other kinds of ideas and values? I don't want to say much more about that. I just wanted you to hear our value system. And here's my final point. It begins and ends with wonder in terms of how might I approach the possibility of transcendence? How might I approach the possibility of including other people or other ideas that I may not hold um, in terms of my perspective? It begins and ends with wonder. I want you to hear some John O'Donohue. Let's look at this, please. Socrates said that the unexamined life isn't worth living. Socrates started raising the questions. One of the most exciting and energetic forms of thought is the question. Now, think about how different that is than what if it read, one of the most exciting and energetic forms of thought is the right answer. Okay? And the right answer is that mythic, literal, tribal consciousness. We know, we've got it, end of story, all you other suckers are idiots. All right? That's the general tenor of it. He says, well, Socrates, the reason why he eventually drank hemlock and died at the hands of the Athenian authorities was because he valued the question. And the question, if you're really going to hold a posture of questioning, means you have to be in relationship with wonder. You have to be in, a re in relationship with not knowing. All right, so it goes on. I always think that the question is like a lantern. I thought the answers were the lantern. I, here's a phrase from childhood, I know that I know that I know. Okay, that was what Bible uh, preachers were always saying. I know that I know that I know. I've got the lantern of knowing. He's saying the lantern is the question. It illuminates new landscapes and new areas as it moves. It reminds me, I just... It popped in my head that, that famous Zen story where the, a Zen master comes home and, um, and he's, <laughs> he's outside, of his, uh, outside of his house and he can't get in the door. And there's a little lantern there, like right outside the house. And he's looking frantically and someone comes along. He says, uh, um, what are you doing here? And uh, he says, well, I'm looking for my key. I dropped my key. And so the other, they start looking around in the bushes and they're going to town and can't find the key anywhere. And finally, the, the guest that came by says to the master, well, where did you drop it? He's like, well, I dropped it back there in the dark. You know. <laughs> so it's like we're looking in the wrong place for things. We have the wrong kind of lantern, you know. All right. Therefore, the question always assumes that there are many different dimensions to a thought that you are either blind to or that are not available to you. See, this is the posture that allows for the possibility of transcendent include. You have to say, I might not know everything. There might be more rungs of the ladder I haven't moved up and down. There might be a value 
hidden in this political perspective that I don't particularly care for, I wouldn't vote for, but there might be a value in there that is true in some way, that I actually, that I actually have, though we might not see eye to eye on other things. I mean, think about this. Do you assume that there are many different dimensions to a thought that you, are, that you might be blind to? I mean, that, I would like to live more like that. Okay, so a question is really one of the forms in which wonder expresses itself. A question is one of the forms in which wonder expresses itself. Maybe you know somebody who's really good at asking the right questions. It just things blossom in that kind of environment. One of the reasons that we wonder is because we are limited. I hate to tell you, you walk away from, a, from just wrestling with transcendent include briefly for just a couple of Sundays at 10 a.m., and um, you realize how limited. I realize how limited I am. I don't know. And that limitation is one of the great gateways to wonder. That's what I want to leave you with. Just feeling your own sense of limitation as a gateway to the possibility of wonder, as a gateway to including what you don't yet include in your own world and in your own way. That's it for today. Thanks.